Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Natural gas is critical to the functioning of the European economy, from heating our homes to powering industry. With Russia the biggest supplier, many analysts fear that President Putin might be about to turn off the gas taps. The impact of such a move could be profound, with the German economy minister warning of the potential for a Lehman Brothers moment. I want to know how likely it is that this might happen, what the fallout would be, and crucially, what could it mean for our investments? Will we be burning our stocks to keep warm this winter? And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, what is a black swan event? Okay, let's get into it. Europe as a whole, the EU and the UK, is extremely reliant on imports of natural gas. 87% of the gas supply to Europe comes from imports, and the biggest supplier is Russia, with 31% of Europe's gas supply coming through Russian pipelines and a further 4% coming through liquefied natural gas deliveries. Now, you don't have to be a mathematical genius to know that that's 35% of Europe's gas comes from Russia, and there is the potential for Russia to turn off the gas taps. Now, this would affect the whole continent, really, but a lot of people are focusing on Germany and how their economy is more at risk than others. What do you think, Roman? I think it's a really big risk, not just for Europe, but I think this could have repercussions globally. So obviously we think about financial markets because that's what I talk about all the time. But I think this could also create political instability because if we have a limited resource and lots of countries are chasing that resource, that historically has been usually a trigger point for some kind of political disputes and that can even escalate into war. Big start to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to say, I mean, I don't think it's going to come to that. But, you know, when there is a kind of limited resource, that's the worry. Okay, so let's step back just for a second. (laughs) When the invasion of Ukraine happened, Germany was really dependent on Russian gas with 55% of its supply coming from Russia. Now, I think they have managed to dial that down to 35% now, but it still looks like they can't replace that supply easily from elsewhere. Yeah, there was a nice article from Bruegel where they looked at whether the Russian gas supply was substitutable, whether it would be possible to replace it with other sources. And what's interesting is that the actual capacity of imports isn't fully utilised in Europe. So there are other ports in Europe where not all of the natural gas which could be imported is imported. So in theory, it's possible to use those to pick up the slack. But in practice, it would be really tricky to do that. Yeah, I think the issue with liquefied natural gas is that you're competing for it on the global marketplace, right? And there's this idea that you can outbid Asia and bring some more of the ships to Europe. But that's not going to be easy to do. No, that's right. Usually the contracts are long term. And the other problem is that imagine that you're someone that's providing LNG, then who are you going to favour? Somebody that's growing more rapidly in terms of demand and who's going to be a long term customer or someone who's really just using you as a stopgap measure because they had a dodgy energy policy. (laughs) Yeah, clearly they're going to favour Asia. So I think that's the problem. That's one of the problems. I think the other issue is Germany, for example, doesn't have any LNG terminals to actually degasify the product themselves. They're reliant on terminals across the North Sea in the Netherlands and Rotterdam, Belgium and France. Though they are desperately trying to build their own floating LNG terminals, which should be ready by the start of next year. Two of them, I think. The other problem, I think, is that the demand for LNG is so great now that there's actually a limitation on how much gas can be liquefied because it's an industrial process, of course, and there are only certain amounts of facilities which can do that. So upstream, this is a supply constraint. 
which is the amount of liquefaction capacity, is limited. Also, once you've got the LNG, I don't know if you've seen the ships, they're quite otherworldly. You know, they've got this massive kind of dome shape, which has got the LNG inside it. Yeah. But the whole industry is sort of weird to me. The whole fact we call it natural gas. I always think, can we not just get some unnatural gas? Or what is that, <laughs> against the will of God or something? <laughs> but I think, you know, ultimately, the dependence on these kind of fossil fuels is going to be a problem again and again in future. And unless we solve that problem, this is the kind of crisis that we're just going to have to face repeatedly. Yeah. And if you look at the issue around Russia and the supply of gas to Germany, I think there's three main pipelines it comes through currently. There's what's called the Central Corridor, which goes through Ukraine. That's been sort of dialed down for obvious reasons. There's the Yamal Europe pipeline through Belarus and Poland, which was opened in the 90s. And then there's the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which is what everyone's talking about at the moment. And that brings gas from St. Petersburg through the Baltic Sea and was opened in 2011. Now, every year they have this annual shutdown for about 10 days where they do maintenance on the pipeline. It's a normal thing. And that's just started this week on Monday. And everyone's sort of asking, is it going to start up again in 10 days time? I think there was an issue as well, wasn't there, with some kind of gas pump, which was sent to Canada for maintenance. But then due to sanctions, there was a question of whether it could actually be moved back. Yeah, I did read about this. It was Siemens, who is a German company that helps maintain the pipeline. And there's this turbine, I think, not a pump from in a turbine. <laughs> Sorry. And yeah, it was sent to Canada for repair or whatever. And then Canadian sanctions meant it couldn't be sent back to Russia. So it has to be sent to Germany, which then would forward it on to Russia. Is that right? Yeah, but Canada actually had to make a legal exception to their sanctions to allow the re-export of this turbine. And sort of Putin, I think, was rubbing his hands and was using this as an excuse. So Russia has actually dialed down the amount of gas going through Nord Stream 1 to just 40% of its usual capacity, which is stopping Europe really building up its gas supplies in its storage facilities. Because the plan was, yes, Russia could turn off the gas taps. When would the worst time be? In the winter, when we're using so much gas, so what we want to do is fill up our storage tanks in the summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Russia is obviously desperately trying to stop Europe doing that to keep its leverage. And probably hoping it's going to be a cold winter, because I think this winter, the previous one we've just had in 2022, wasn't actually that cold. If you look at the temperature at Frankfurt Airport, it only reached down to about 4.7 on average. So not a particularly cold winter, which was great news for Europe. But wait, if there's a Nord Stream 1, Michael, was there also a Nord Stream 2? There was. There is a Nord Stream 2. It's just never been opened, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that was actually shut down for political reasons, right? Yeah, it was kind of ready to open, really, this year and was waiting for certification from, I think, the German authorities. And then, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine and it's never been certified. And now we're in this situation where Germany has actually decommissioned almost all of its nuclear power stations. I mean, that is crazy, right, to do that right now. I think so. But I think ultimately a country's got to decide on what it's most comfortable with in terms of generating energy. But I think the fear of nuclear energy, which isn't renewable, we should say, because you do need uranium, which is a finite resource, which is produced in a few mines globally. It's not renewable, but it doesn't produce CO2, of course. But I just think that there's this irrational fear of nuclear power in Germany, maybe because of the Cold War and people's fear of radiation. But I think it's unjustified. You know, most modern designs of nuclear power stations are very safe. 
I mean, previously we had a design that was inherently unstable, a pressure water reactor. But modern designs nowadays, if something goes wrong, the reactor just shuts down. I mean, it's not to say it's risk-free, but what's really strange to me is that the Green Party is in a coalition in Germany. And just last week, the parliament there passed a law reopening some coal power plants and confirming the shutdown of the nuclear plants. Like, you'd think that would be the last thing a Green Party would want to do. And it's interesting, the actual types of coal which are being used to fill the gap for energy supply is partially lignite plants. This is probably the most horrendous (laughs) form of coal. And they actually have to recommission these really old lignite-fired power stations, which don't meet these emissions limits. So really it's going against all of the changes, the positive changes that have been made in the previous decades. I mean, I'm hoping it's a short-term measure, right? Oh, of course, yeah. But the question is, how long is this crisis going to last? I mean, it could be years. So the question is, what's Germany going to do ultimately? You know, they have to shift to renewables, but it's just so expensive to do that. Yeah, maybe it's worth thinking about why is gas so important? What's the demand side of this equation? So I did look into it and gas in Germany is used for a huge amount of different things. So industrial uses accounts for around 29%. Households account for a further 29%. The energy sector, so that's electricity, district heating, refineries, that kind of thing, that's another 28%. So all those three are about the same. And then commercial uses, 13%. So it's used across all different aspects of the German economy. And of course, there's a Haber process. You're going to have to explain that. Right. So one of the things that plants need is ammonia, and that goes into fertilizer. And there's a chap called Haber who found this incredibly efficient process for creating ammonia from nitrogen and hydrogen. So of course, you can get the hydrogen from water, the nitrogen comes from the air. And you have to really heat it up to a really high temperature and compress the gas and it produces ammonia. And then you can use that for fertilizer. So this is something you might not think about, but of course it requires a lot of heat, the whole process. So that's another surprising use case for gas to generate the heat for that process. And it's interesting, isn't it? If we do get gas supply shortages, the knock-on effects are hard to think through because are we then going to get fertilizer shortages? Are we going to get all these other things where supply chains will just break down? Not just that. Given the fact that Germany produces so much of the really important machinery and parts for the industrial processes in Europe and elsewhere, if there is a crunch on the German ability to do that, if they have to shut down a lot of the factories, it's going to be another supply chain issue, you know, just like we had with China when they shut down due to COVID. So I think these supply chain issues could go on for much longer than we expected. I think there is an awareness now in Germany of just how serious this situation could become. So their economic minister said it could be a Lehman Brothers type moment for Europe and the whole market for natural gas could be in danger of collapsing this winter, you know, in a worst case scenario. This would be unthinkable. I mean, it really would be a catastrophe for European equity. And so far, at least, just like in the US, if you look at the forecast earnings for European companies, they're still forecast to be very strong, as if this isn't a problem or we can just look through this volatility. I just think that's looking increasingly unlikely. So let's imagine the worst case. Let's say that they do shut off gas supplies to Europe. Let's just think it through. What it would mean would be that a lot of industrial companies, which are energy intensive, which let's face it, is a lot of German industry because it is largely manufacturing based, would have to shut down. 
or at least reduce production. Yeah, because they have an emergency plan, which obviously prioritises the things you would expect, hospitals, emergency services and heating houses. Yeah, you can't let people freeze in Germany. I mean, it's just unthinkable. So you'd have to prioritise particularly vulnerable people, but also hospitals, like you say. You're prioritising people over your Mercedes, is this what you're telling me? I know it's shocking, (laughs) but it's true. (laughs) But think about what that would mean in terms of exports, but also what it would mean for the manufacturing sectors throughout Europe. I mean, it's almost unthinkable. We haven't seen a precedent that's anything like that. Even Lehman, I don't think, was as bad as that. That was almost like a contrived problem because of too much leverage. But this is completely on a different level. So let's just hope this doesn't happen. But if it did happen, I think, you know, the repercussions would be huge, not just directly because of German manufacturing, but because of the second order effects, because of all of the parts and the machinery which Germany makes, which are exported elsewhere. So let's just think, how likely is this to happen? Are Russia going to cut off the gas? I mean, they've already shut off the gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria and Netherlands because they haven't been willing to sort of do this rubles payment mechanism that Russia wanted. Nord Stream 1 is now shut down for 10 days and it's been running at just 40% capacity. The thing I think is that if Russia does do it, and let's be honest, Putin will use whatever tools he has at his disposal, I think. I would be surprised if they did it before their moment of peak leverage, which would be, you know, November, December, just heading into the winter. And by that time, of course, the LNG terminals will almost be ready in Germany. So there will be an ability to kind of reduce the impact. But really, this would be self-destructive on the part of Russia, because this is a large source of revenue for the country. Sanctions have really hurt their economy, and almost all of their revenue now comes in the form of energy. So I think they can see that this is not going to be a long-term sustainable source of revenue for the country, because ultimately countries are going to wean themselves off Russian energy. And this has just accelerated that process. And it's not that Russia can just switch to supplying this gas to some other countries because, you know, it doesn't have the pipelines that go there. Yeah, so I think they're in as much of a difficult situation as Europe is. They're mutually dependent and yet mutually they loathe each other, which is not a great situation. (laughs) It's like one of these divorces where both parties hate each other, but for practical reasons or economic reasons, they're forced to stay in the relationship. I'm not speaking from bitter experience myself, of course. (laughs) But just looking at the exports that Germany produces, cars make up a huge proportion of it, but also vehicle parts, pharmaceuticals, things like the aerospace industry, so aircraft, helicopters, even spacecraft, and of course engine parts, machinery, medical instruments. They do too much, if anything, don't they? But they do it so well. That's the trouble. I mean, what was interesting is Germany actually posted their first foreign trade deficit since 1991. And this is on a monthly basis. So they had a trade deficit of 1 billion euros in May, which is, yeah, almost unheard of for Germany. They're usually in a massive surplus. Yeah, again, you know, almost unthinkable and utterly shocking. I mean, this is partly down to a less demand for goods and services as the economy slows. And that's typically bad for Germany because it is a cyclical economy. If it manufactures stuff then if there is a global slowdown, that's usually bad for Germany as well. But here we're in a very difficult situation where they actually might be limited in terms of what they can manufacture at the same time as global demand is falling, as global growth kind of slows down. So they do have a plan. They have this emergency gas plan, which they announced in March. 
and they were at the first level for you know a long time. And then in June, they kicked up to the second alert level, which allows energy suppliers to start passing on big price increases to try and squash demand. And then they may have to go up to the third level, which is the highest level. And that is when rationing of gas begins. So this would be rolling cutouts in terms of energy usage. And I was just looking at some of the measures which people have just been instigating themselves voluntarily. And the goal here is to kind of build up their gas supplies so that they can go into storage rather than being used during the summer. Yeah, and it's interesting that storage capacity is now 63% full and their goal is to get it to 90% full by the 1st of November. So, for example, there's a place near Frankfurt, Landil, where they've switched off the hot water in schools and in gyms, and that's until September. Dusseldorf, they've closed this massive swimming complex because, of course, that requires heating. Berlin has essentially turned down the thermostat on lots of open-air swimming pools, and in Cologne, they've dimmed their street lighting. I mean, I'm in Austria right now and I've actually turned our swimming pool down by a couple of degrees. So I'm really (laughs) suffering right now to try and save Europe. So even Schloss Pew has uh, had to pay the price then. Yeah, it's no longer like a sauna in that swimming pool. (laughs) It's more like a normal pool. (laughs) But I saw that the International Energy Agency has come up with this 10-point plan, which they're going to slowly implement, supposedly in order to circumvent some of these problems. And part of that is a reduction in demand. That's the obvious thing that people can do. It's funny that the plan came to exactly 10 points. (laughs) It's always convenient, isn't it? (laughs) But at least some of that is strategic. It's not just tactical. This is kind of long-term things like accelerating deployment of wind and solar projects. Things like replacing gas boilers with heat pumps. Because, for example, in Scandinavia, a lot of people use heat pumps and they're much more efficient. People complain that they don't produce enough heat, but I think they're much more efficient. So that's the justification for having them. They are. They're expensive to install because I think you need to change a lot of the pipe work because they run at a different pressure to your normal gas boiler systems. And things as simple as turning down thermostats, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, how much did the International Energy Agency get paid for this plan? I could have come up with these things. <laughs> let's put some solar panels up, let's turn down the heat. I mean, but that's what kind of points out that there is no magic solution here, right? We can't immediately change the whole of the energy mix in Europe. Interestingly, the European Commission is planning to table some proposals in mid-July, so any time now looking to coordinate the response to a potential gas emergency and how rationing might be balanced between countries if we do get there. Obviously, everyone's still hoping we don't get to a situation where that's needed. Because what you don't want is to see countries in Europe fighting amongst themselves for supply in a kind of the way we saw with the vaccine supply, right, early in the pandemic. And there's also talk of political instability within Germany. So historically, we saw terrible things such as food riots when there was a lack of food. But, you know, you could have energy riots if people can't stay warm in winter. I mean, people say that the government has to do two basic things, feed its population and keep them warm in winter. So if it fails on one of those, then it could lead to instability. I mean, I know there are emergency plans to have effectively shelters which are heated and then lots of people can go into them in the very, very worst case scenario. Yeah, I guess for vulnerable people, that could be a choice. It does sound all rather doomsday-ish, doesn't it? I mean, you still have to say this is probably not going to happen, but there's a real chance that it could. And it's already being priced into markets to some extent. So, for example, if we look at companies which have already run into trouble due to this crisis, 
one of them actually had to apply for a bailout to the government because it's particularly now too important to fail. That's Uniper. So the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, has actually said he's going to help Uniper because they don't have any choice. And that's because it has to cope with the distribution of natural gas. So Uniper said that the stabilisation measures it's seeking are aimed at seizing the current accumulation of substantial losses covering Uniper's liquidity needs and protecting their investment grade rating. So basically, they're being bailed out by the German government. Oh, yeah. And it's happened to energy suppliers in the UK as well, because the basic problem is politicians don't want to pass on these ridiculously high energy prices to consumers. And so they're asking energy companies to kind of foot the bill And they don't have the capital to do that, right? If the price you're selling energy for is a lot less than the price you're paying, you're going to get in trouble pretty quickly. And if you look at the energy prices right now in Europe, they have been going vertical. So the way these prices are measured is in euros per megawatt hour. So for example, in Germany, it's gone up to just under 300 euros per megawatt hour. France is not much less. And what would be more typical? So this has gone up from well below 200 just in March of this year. So over the space of a month, the prices have almost doubled. And I think it's something like six times less if you go to like a normal period before this crisis. And of course, we've seen natural gas prices surge and then fall back and then surge again. So it has been a very volatile period for these futures markets. I mean, what's interesting if you look at the UK is we're in kind of an interesting position as a country. We do have a domestic gas supply. It doesn't meet all our needs. But we also have a huge demand for gas. Like 80% of UK households are heated by gas, which is a huge amount. And we made the brilliant decision to shut our main gas storage facility in 2017 when Centrica closed the rough storage facility. And now, obviously, the UK government is in talks thinking, oh, we need to get this back up and running very quickly. So we are in the weird position where in the summer months, we are an exporter of gas and we send a lot to continental Europe so they can fill up their storage facilities. And then in the winter, we don't have any storage of our own. So we start to import some of the gas back effectively (laughs) from these storage facilities. If everything goes wrong in Europe... UK's not in the EU anymore. There's that kind of potential where we might not have enough gas in the winter, or at least we might have to pay a huge amount for it to get it back. But it's not all bad because at least our supply, very little of it came from Russia. So we've got a lot more of our supply coming from Norway. Yeah, that's true. Only 4% came from Russia. That's right. And so that energy mix, at least in the UK, wasn't as bad at least not as badly affected by this. But of course, a large dependence on energy imports is still a problem because the price is set by international supply constraints and demand. So we'll still have to pay more. It's just that we're not giving the money to Russia. Yeah, that's what everyone sort of thinks instinctive, isn't it? Oh, we're not getting gas from Russia, at least not directly. So why should energy prices in the UK go up? But, you know, it's an international gas market that's kind of harmonised and we're exporting. We're also importing from Norway and Norway kind of have pipelines that go to Europe and to the UK and they can choose where to send their gas. Yeah. So you have to (laughs) bid for it. And if you look at the actual inflation forecast for the UK, it's the worst in G7 both this year and next, and it's partly because of the way we do the price cap for our energy. So we impose these kind of artificial caps, supposedly to stop energy companies from raising prices too quickly. But all that it really means is they just pass on higher costs. And it just means that instead of going in little steps or as markets move, they go up in really big steps as the cap gets updated. So at the end of this year, again, we're going to have a huge step upwards in prices. 
And an energy cap really is, to me, kind of a nonsense. Yeah, it might help to sort of protect consumers for a little while, but ultimately someone has to pay for the gas, whether it's the government or consumers, right? There's no way to get it for free. And if there's a subsidy from the government, all that means is that future households have to pay for it rather than households today. There's no kind of magic spell which makes high prices go away. What the government can do is kind of help people with their cash flow, can't they, and spread it over a longer period of time. Or just vulnerable households. I think ultimately people just have to pay higher prices. There isn't a way around that. I mean, when you're in a potential supply shortage, you do want demand to be lower and higher prices do give that price signal for people to use less gas. Cruel as that sounds. But at least in the UK, we are moving more rapidly than people thought to renewable energy. And one of the favourite YouTube channels that I watch, in fact, pretty much the only one actually, (laughs) is Fully Charged with Robert Llewellyn, who played Crichton in Red Dwarf. Of course, it's science fiction. (laughs) Yeah, Robin. But he has this brilliant channel about renewable energy. It's partly about cars, electric cars, but it's also about renewable energy. And one of the things he talks about is the shift to kind of renewables from fossil fuels. And he talks about how much of the fossil fuel industry exists because of government subsidy. You know, if we started out from scratch today, we'd never come up with this energy mix, which we've got right now. It's just for historic reasons and also because of very strong lobbying, I think, on behalf of fossil fuel companies. It is depressing in a way that Europe got itself into this situation. I guess it's a kind of complacency in energy policy and lobbying, like you say, which has benefited certain supplies over others. Like it's crazy that our main manufacturing powerhouse, Germany, is so dependent on one of our big adversaries. (laughs) But trying to take an optimistic view on this, I think this could be a catalyst for a positive change, which is a more rapid move towards renewables. I think that's just sane policy. The difficulty is that it requires a lot of upfront investment. And for many governments, just after the pandemic, when they've had to issue a lot of debt and to spend a lot, they're looking to tighten up on the fiscal front. And so ploughing money into renewables right now, where you don't see the political benefit immediately, you don't see the benefits maybe for five or even 10 years, that's going to be something that's very difficult for a government to do. I just can't see our government doing it, for example. And correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't a lot of the renewables infrastructure reliant on exports from China? So we'd just be kind of going to another adversary and saying, save us, please. (laughs) I mean, it's got to be done, but you know. Well, some of the parts are. I mean, some of the companies which create wind farms, for example, are, are not based in China. Some of the parts are and some of the raw materials come from China, for example. But that's just the nature of global supply chains. So let's think through what this means for investors then. I think it's fair to say, you know, if we get anywhere near a worst case scenario, we're going to have a big recession in Europe. There's no way around that, right? But then what does that mean for investors in equities in Europe and elsewhere and government bonds, things like that? So let's say there's a really, really deep recession. Clearly, that's not good for equity. And at the moment, equity has sold off in Europe. Of course, it has. Equity sold off everywhere in the world so far this year. But really, the sell-offs haven't been that bad. And it really depends on the sectors you look at. So, for example, I mean, we just mentioned Uniper, which is this German company, which is focused on energy generation and energy trading. That's down by 78% year to date. So that kind of electricity company would not do well in this environment. Or retail. So retail is a cyclical sector. Companies like Zalando, for example, are down again by over 60% year to date or other cyclical things, such as some financial companies, which actually offer credit. 
So in a downturn, people are more likely to default on their loans. So companies like Hyperport, Argay, that's down over 64% year to date. So industrial engineering, finance and credit services, the wrong kind of energy, all of these are the companies and the sectors which would do badly. And then on the other side, if you've got a renewable energy company, such as PNE, Argay, is a wind farm developer, that's up about 60% year to date. So that's a big success story. Another kind of company would be a solar park operator like Encarvis, Argay, up 32%. And things like pharmaceuticals, which aren't necessarily directly negatively impacted by this, those could do okay. They're usually seen as fairly stable through these crises because people still need medicine. Now, typically, telecoms companies would be seen as being cyclical, but in fact, Telefonica Deutschland has actually done pretty well so far this year. I suspect that may not last if we had a deep recession, but usually you'd go for these sectors which are obviously not negatively impacted by the energy prices, but also their defensives. So that would be healthcare, consumer staples, and utilities companies usually. But again, there there might be the effect of energy prices. But how do we think about this as investors when there's an event on the horizon which may or may not happen? It would kind of seem crazy to shift our whole portfolio in some way. Well, with all these things, what you normally do is assign a probability. So let's say that there was a 100% probability that Russia was going to turn off the gas taps. Then, you know, you'd go into a fully defensive portfolio. You'd sell all your equity, basically, if you knew that for sure. Well, you'd certainly de-risk if you knew it for sure. And would you allocate to Europe? No. (laughs) That's the kind of epicentre of the effect. So you'd go for regions which weren't directly affected by that if you were going to go for equity and for sectors that wouldn't be impacted. But in reality, what you have to do is assign a probability to these tail risks. So let's say you think the probability is 30%, then you might still have some European allocation just in case it doesn't happen. And if it doesn't happen, there's potential for upside because people are already starting to price in some risk of this happening. I think that's always the way you've got to approach it in a probabilistic way, according to what your subjective probability is, your judgment of whether it's going to happen. And you're right, it feels like a binary outcome, but these things never are. Yeah, because you also don't know how well Europe might weather it if it does happen, like how will their storage capacity hold up? How will they be able to squash demand? And, you know, is this going to be a recurring thing and a long-term thing, or is it just a one-off bad winter? It does feel, certainly to me, as if this is going to be a protracted problem. And it's going to take a while for this to be resolved. And whatever the resolution is, is not going to be clean. And it may come with political instability. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Could this kick off another European government debt crisis, for example? Like, if you think about it, inflation will be a lot higher if this happens, because energy prices are going to be sky high. And also, it's recessionary, so central banks will want to lower interest rates rather than raise them, which does nothing to bring inflation under control. And governments are going to probably want to protect consumers, so that involves more state spending and higher deficits. So you've got all these things in the mix which don't tend to play well together. There is a positive to this, which I think is kind of unification of Europe against an outside aggressor. So, for example, we've seen strengthening of NATO. That's probably a positive. And we've also seen people seeing the strength of the European Union as a unified entity. And I think that's a positive too, with more people wanting to join including Ukraine as it happens. Yeah, we're like the only rock where people don't want to join. (laughs) (laughs) I do. 
Look, I think there are positives that have come out of this. And one of the things is that I think it's less likely now that there'll be fragmentation of the Eurozone. So that's probably a positive. But if you look, the euro has fallen to almost parity now with the dollar down massively, isn't it? It was like $1.15, I think, not so long ago. Yeah, the euro has been weakening versus the dollar. Almost everything has, in fact. And sterling, of course, has been weakening against the dollar by just as much. I mean, that really says how bad the euro is, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) if they're doing as badly as the pound. But I think it's certainly seen, the euro is seen as a safe haven currency still. Not in this crisis, it wouldn't be. Oh, in this crisis, of course it wouldn't, no. So if the the epicentre of the crisis was Europe, then no, it would certainly not be a safe haven currency, I should say that. But at the moment, I think a lot of the weakness of the euro has been down to the fact that growth is weaker there and monetary policy has been to have a more low rate relative to the US which typically weakens the euro. So that combination of weaker growth and lower interest rates have probably been the two big factors driving the euro weaker against the dollar. I don't think we've really priced in the risk of the gas taps being switched off. Is this affecting anything you're doing with your portfolio? Well, no. Certainly for the core, Europe is such a small part of it. Not a tiny part like the UK, but it's about 10-11% of my global equity fund, which I have in my core. So really, it hasn't affected that at all. If anything, I'd probably put more in right now because valuations are lower. But that's part of a kind of global weakness for equity. So you're drip feeding into equity as you always would global equity? Yeah, yeah. I haven't changed that at all. For the kind of fund portfolio, yeah, I think there are some real opportunities here. Such as? Well, European equity. I think if if there was a huge sell-off, the question then becomes, is European equity ever going to recover? And of course, the answer is yes. Individual companies might not recover, but certainly Europe will. So there could be some really good opportunities coming out of this crisis. So as we're all shivering in our homes this winter, just be like waiting for the electricity to come back on so you can look at your Bloomberg terminal. (laughs) Bloomberg terminal, if only... I have to use Coifin. I don't have Bloomberg. I have SharePad, Coifin. It's all kind of like the budget (laughs) versions of Bloomberg. But look, I think always with these crises, you should always be thinking, how long is it going to last? What opportunities is this giving me for my portfolio? And is this producing depressed prices where they're not justified? Because often you find what, what happens is that one country runs into problems and then unrelated countries, because of the lack of risk appetite, also get depressed. So those are the kinds of opportunities to think about. But generally, if you look at government bonds at the moment, for example, they have rallied since the huge sell-off. And, you know, that was one of the tactical moves I made in my fund portfolio. And I think European government bonds as well, what you'd expect is they provide some degree of safety for European investors at least. I'm not sure I'd be putting my money into European government bonds right now. No, I don't think I would either. Because I think the issues with the Eurozone, as we've discussed before, have not been resolved. If spreads blow out because of this crisis, we don't know how the ECB is going to react. But if anything, I think this will increase their resolve in order to not get fragmentation of the government bond market in Europe. So peripheral spreads won't be allowed to blow out. They'll find some kind of mechanism in order to make those spreads compress and bring all of the government bond yields down, not in line with each other, of course, but pricing in a reasonable relative risk versus one another. People are often worried about crises such as the potential energy crisis in Europe and how it'll affect their portfolio. If you want to discuss this and your worries in a friendly environment and learn about investing, then go to pensioncraft.com to learn about our membership. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, what is a black swan? 
You might have heard this term. We use it all the time. I think often we use it wrongly. But Robin, could you define it for us? What is a black swan event? All it means is that it's a very unlikely event that occurs very infrequently. Now, if you're assuming that a bad thing's not going to happen, that things will pretty much continue as they have in the past during good times, then that's when you're kind of most exposed to black swan events. So let's think of an example. If you think about what happened to the sell-off that we got during 1987, that was a black swan event. That was a one-day fall, wasn't it? A massive one-day fall. It was a huge one-day fall. Nobody really knows exactly why it happened. Some people think it was to do with the storms we had in October of 1987, which I still remember. It was my first year in physics at university. And I remember walking up Prince Consort Road to Imperial, to the physics department, just walking through all these kind of bewildered squirrels and plane trees, which had, <laughs> which had kind of fallen over in the street. But nobody really knows what triggered it. But there was a huge fall. It was very rapid and very severe. And if you model these things with a normal distribution, so let's say you model the return of equity prices using a normal distribution, there's something called a three sigma event where usually things will move a certain amount every day. So let's say that a one sigma event would just be the kind of day-to-day -day movements of equity markets. Things are just kind of bumbling along in the background. Think of it like a kind of mumbling of markets, right? It just mumbles oh, nice. to itself. Okay. <laughs> And then sometimes you get a kind of very sharp move. So call that a two sigma event. And then very rarely you'll get a three sigma event when you move three standard deviations. That's a very unusual event if you use a normal distribution. That's the screaming of markets, is it? Yeah, that's like the market screaming at the top of its voice. And really all these distributions tell you is when something's surprising. But what happens is if you model things as a normal distribution, sometimes you get seven sigma, 10 sigma events that would never happen. In the history of the universe, it would never happen. Yeah, if it was a normal distribution. Yeah. So it tells you that model is wrong then. That's not how the world works. Yeah, that's right. Your model of the universe is wrong if it's a normal distribution. So people have come up with all different distributions which potentially could model markets where you make the tails bigger. So these unlikely events are more probable. But really, I think you should have the kind of portfolio and also the psychology that can deal with these events with the understanding that, yeah, they will happen occasionally. But you've got to have a portfolio which isn't fragile, where you won't be wiped out if you do have one of these events. Now, previously, we've talked about leverage, and that's one of the things that can get wiped out by these black swan events. And diversification is the way to fight it. Exactly. If you've got a diversified portfolio, you will be affected, of course, by these rare events, but much less than if you have a very concentrated portfolio in just a few stocks. I think this idea was sort of originated and popularised by Nassim Nicholas Taleb in his book, The Black Swan. And yes, it's about these events which are very unlikely and highly consequential as well, and can only really be explained in retrospect, right? Looking backwards. And what's interesting, I wrote a book about finance, which was called The Financial Bestiary. And one of the things I talked about in it was black swan events. And what's really interesting is black swan events come up at the same time as you get these really large positive returns. So big negative returns go hand in hand with big bounce backs. Yeah. I call these golden swan events. Interesting. You should write a book with that title, Robin. <laughs> that would sell. <laughs> so golden swans and black swans, they kind of go together. They go in flocks. So that's why I think avoiding these kind of events is almost impossible. 
all you can really do is kind of mitigate the effect on your portfolio if it does happen. Or train yourself not to do the crazy thing, which is to sell if one of these events happens. I think one of the things we get mixed up in when we're defining black swans is we class a lot of foreseeable events that are just bad into it. Like the pandemic kind of isn't a black swan because we knew a pandemic was going to come at some point. It's just inevitable. It happens throughout human history periodically. It was going to come. Something like 9-11 to me is a black swan because who knew, right, that some random terrorist from the Middle East could cause such damage to the biggest economy in the world? Yeah, I think some of these things are misclassified, like you say. Because in the world, there's some really bad things that could happen that we know are going to happen. Like the San Andreas Fault off California is going to go at some point and cause a huge amount of damage to that coastline. We know that's going to happen. And when it happens, people go, oh, that was a black swan event. <laughs> but we know it's going to happen, so it kind of isn't. And another one would be something like an asteroid impact. That's another one which we never like to think about, but ultimately it's going to happen. It's just a question of when and how bad the impact's going to be. And the other thing is, can we get positive black swans, the things that we don't really see as foreseeable, and then cause a huge upward movement in equity markets? You've talked about golden swans, which kind of come off the back of a black swan, but could we just have a golden swan of its own? For example, it might be a resolution of this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. If that happened, then there'd be a larger downward pressure on commodity prices as supply increased if the sanctions were lifted. I'd say that would be a golden swan. Yeah, but it's kind of foreseeable. I think it would have to happen in a really bizarre way. Like Putin just becomes a really nice person. Somehow. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a golden swan. <laughs> well, look, there's a golden swan and there's kind of like a platinum swan. And I think that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the other one is energy, right, which we've talked about. If we suddenly resolved some big physics problem and made scalable nuclear fusion, which could be rolled out, and we didn't need all these fossil fuels, just overnight almost, that would be incredible. It's funny, when I used to teach physics to kids, one of the things I always used to tell them was, if you hear about high temperature superconductors being invented in a practical way, room temperature, then immediately go out and buy energy stocks. Because I think this is going to completely transform energy markets if it does happen. Because if you could transmit energy loss-free, that would be another biggie. Fusion, that would be another one. Yeah. A lot of it, I think, comes from technology, technological changes and improvements. Those would be usually the positive black swans. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Keep sending us your questions at mhr at pensioncraft.com and we'll tackle them in the coming episodes. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.